Hello, welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. My name is Kevin, and I'm going to be your host for today. Today, we are going to the movies. If I asked you to name some of your favorite movies from the 1990s, odds are several of those were made in 1999. That year was bombarded with films like The Sixth Sense, Being John Malkovich, American Pie, and The Blair Witch Project that have ingrained themselves in our culture. My guest today is Brian Raftery, who has a long career of writing on culture and entertainment for such publications as Wired, Rolling Stone, and Entertainment Weekly. Brian is the author of the fascinating book, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. And he joins me to discuss how movies like The Matrix, Office Space, and Fight Club have become cornerstones of our popular culture 20 years later. If you would like more information on Brian and his work, be sure to visit his website, www.brianaftery.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, be sure to leave a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. I'd like to send out a thank you to listener E.G. Howes, who left an iTunes review. Apparently, they really liked the bonus episode I did on the Fly Girls book, where I asked my five-year-old her perspective on uh, female aviators, which was a lot of fun. So thank you for the feedback on that. And if you want to share your thoughts on the show, um, I'd love to hear them and give you a shout out on a future episode. And then as always, if you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. We have all kinds of ways you can support the show and benefits for doing so. For example, today we have some bonus Q&A from Brian where he answered Patreon listener questions. So lots of fun stuff. All right, now let's get to my conversation with Brian Raftery. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Cool. Um, so you uh, have an extensive background in film and popular culture. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, luckily, just being in uh, writing about film, no one has asked me to be in a film, which is to everyone's uh, benefit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've been writing about um, culture and film and TV and music and, and web culture for almost about 20 years now, and I worked at Wired for a long stretch at GQ and Entertainment Weekly, and then freelancing off and on, um, just sort of writing about. I've been very lucky to write about write about things that interest me, and then occasionally get assigned to write about something I'm not interested in, but I find a way to to learn from it. So, um, yeah, I've sort of been able to um, follow a lot of my own sort of curiosity, and and that curiosity almost always leads to how movies are made, how what impact the internet's having, um, you know, how a certain song or album came to be. So, um, yeah, cultural, yeah, cultural, it used to be called entertainment reporting, which everyone used to kind of sneer at in the 90s, and now it's called culture writing, which I think people are starting to sneer at again. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think if I said arts writing, it would just be a little too pretentious. So, um, yeah, basically sort of writing about a little bit of everything without any sort of having a big, long-time beat. Okay, well, this is the stuff that, you know, touches all of our lives, and, and whether we like to admit it or not, we're, we're actively engaged in, in this part of society. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think we're, uh, 
you know, I, I think we're in a really interesting time right now for writing about culture because we're just so inundated with it. And it's just it's everywhere. It's it's on your phone. It's it's following you around no matter where. So you, I think if there was a time you ever wanted to escape popular culture or discussing popular culture, I think that time is over. All right. So you are the author of um, the very cleverly titled book, in my opinion, Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. Um, and I was just shocked as I read through it, all the movies that came out that year. Um, and, and I think our listeners will be as well. Can you just name drop a few of the major titles that came out in 99? Yeah, it's one of those crazy years where even if you did a top 10, you'd have all these leftovers. I mean, you had these really big culture-changing films like um, like The Matrix and The Sixth Sense and The Blair Witch Project. And then you had a lot of films that were actually not hits at the time, but became these sort of huge cultural films like Fight Club or Office Space or Election. And then even when you kind of go down the margins, you just had a really, it was a really interesting year for teen movies. It was a really interesting year for um, American independent films. Uh, it was, it's kind of all over the map. I mean, it's, it's really, it's sort of everything from being John Malkovich to the Virgin Suicides to The Phantom Menace, which is a pretty, you know, compared to where we are 20 years later, where it's very hard to get kind of original ideas made anywhere near the studio system. Um, it was a year where the studios were taking really big chances on some very risky um, people and some risky screenplays. And, you know, as a result, you get something like Three Kings or being John Malkovich, which they're kind of indescribable, except you can only describe them as you, you've got to go see this movie as soon as possible. So can you briefly summarize the culture of the 1990s and, and what was the status of the film industry uh, at that time? Um, it had been a really interesting decade for film. I mean, the the really collapsed version of it is, you know, the, the American indie sort of blew up in the 90s with Reservoir Dogs, Clerks, um, and all, a lot of sort of films that were put out by Miramax and other small studios. And the big studios by the end of the 90s were trying to sort of catch up. The big studios were very much locked. Uh, I mean, they were making some pretty amazing films, but they were also very much locked in a cycle of sequels and reboots and a lot of TV show adaptations. That I mean, sounds was, familiar. Yeah, I mean, it, but they were back then. It was like I'd forgotten that we had an odd couple sequel, like in 1997. <laughs> I don't think anyone was asking for that as much as I love those performers and love the odd couple. Um, so the the big studios were trying to get their mojo back, and the independent sort of world had brought out all these filmmakers like Wes Anderson and, and Paul Thomas Anderson, and, and MTV had brought in people like David Fincher, and the indie movement had brought in people like Steven Soderbergh, and so you had all these kind of generations and desires colliding in this sort of one very strange year for film culture. And and how did you um, go about researching this? Um, it looks like there were quite a few interviews in the book on your part. Yeah, I did about, I think, a, about 135 interviews. Um, so a lot of it was talking to people like um, like Edward Norton about Fight Club or talking to Kirsten Dunst about the Virgin Suicides, or, or talking to a lot of these filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh and Michael Mann and David Fincher, uh, Sofia Coppola. So a lot of it was research, but I also just, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting about mid-90s, late-90s journalism is that a lot of it's, we all think it's online, but a lot of stuff is, is kind of missing. There's a lot of gaps in a lot of the coverage back then. So, um, you know, I'm right now in the middle of a very tiny office, which is surrounded, unfortunately, by magazines from the 90s i am sort of <laughs> engulfed in old issues of premiere and entertainment weekly and the new york times and i have you know i have the new york times from 
December 31st, 1999, and the New York Times from January 1st, 2000 to sort of get the, you know, sort of to look at the scope of Y2K culture and coverage. I, I have a lot of Y2K stuff. Y2K was going to be a much bigger part of the book early on. And I probably got on a few government lists by looking up so much Y2K <laughs> material. Um, but, you know, the research for me is always the most fun. I, I, you know, interviews are great. And I was really lucky that I got so many big people for this. But um, there's a real joy in just sort of digging into the research and learning things you never do, you never knew at the time or or remembering things you just forgot about. I mean, so many things were happening in 1999. It was it was the year. Donald Trump first started talking about running for president. I mean, a lot of interesting stuff was going on 20 years uh, ago, right before the millennium. And it was interesting and fun and sometimes a little startling to kind of dive back into all that. Well, yeah, that that's what was really interesting about the book, because it's not just about the movies. You talk about um, cultural movements and, like you said, Y2K and, you know, the, the tragedy of Columbine had just happened and we were moving into the 2000 election. And, you know, even though this seems really recent, I mean, this is history. Yeah. And it's important in it's, it's history that even though it's very recent, as you said, we've, we've sort of, you know, we've kind of forgotten about a lot of these things. I mean, I think um, if you had told people, you know, what year did the impeachment end and what and Columbine happened and, you know, uh, the women's soccer team winning and all these huge cultural things, I think they would have assumed those were spread out throughout the decade. But really, you had these 12 months where whether or not it was because we were all sort of subconsciously reacting to the millennium or, or what was going on, it was just a very vivid year. And a lot of things happened that had a big impact that we couldn't quite sense at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly and something like Columbine, which, you know, it, it's hard to write about. And it seems you, you, you want to be very tactful bringing into a book about movies. But, you know, one thing that really struck me is that I, I was out of, you know, it was my last year of college when Columbine happened. And I remember thinking, boy, high school is really going to change. The high school experience in America is going to change. And I think mm -hmm. when you look at 1999, it had more teen movies, I think, than any year before or after. And and those movies now are kind of poignant because they're all frozen in like 1998 when they were made. You know, there's sort of this last look at what high school, American high school was kind of like in this in this pre-Columbine, pre-security guard, pre-transparent you know, you know transparent backpacks era. And I think in a way you can, you know, it was a way of kind of bringing the movies in and bringing the culture in to sort of look at what was going on in the world and, and, and to look back at how much has changed since then. Well, and, and also one thing that kind of shines through as well, it's, it's the pre-social media world. It's the last of the pre-social media world. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, writing about, one of the things that was fun about the research was that there's just so much internet research you can do now and you can go down these really crazy um, deep dives into what was going on in the web and, and sort of how we were talking about culture. And we didn't have social media, but there was a lot of message boards and a lot of those message boards are still up. And, you know, one of the, what's one of the things that was really interesting for me is that, you know, uh, one of the, the biggest movie of that year, not the most beloved, but the biggest movie that year was Star Wars The Phantom Menace, which um, was a movie we all, a lot of people really didn't like. And I, it's interesting now in the last couple of years, I think because of the sort of pushback that some of the new Star Wars movies have gotten, that people think that arguing about Star Wars online is a new is a new thing. And it's like, <laughs> boy, those those arguments 20 years ago were pretty vindictive, pretty mean-spirited. Um, and I think, you know, sadly, I think the way we were sort of starting to talk about movies and culture to one another under an the anonymity of being online, I, I think that was an early warning of like, oh, in, in a couple of years, this is going to collapse and get much worse, where we're just going to, you know, get rid of any sense of propriety when we discuss things. But you can see a little bit of um, this sort of online nastiness, frankly, back in the late 90s. Not not as bad as it is now, but certainly when talking about movies, um, you know, it was, it was starting to become that era where 
you dug in and you argued about something that was that was uh, you know ostensibly completely uh, objective, you know, <laughs> or subjective rather. Um, so anyway, but it was it, it was weird to go back and look at all these old internet arguments where I'm like, oh yeah. I remember people talking about whether Godzilla was good or bad for 13 months back in the late <laughs> 90s. Um, so that was kind of a weird memory, you know, flashback for me. Well, lots of nostalgia, I'm sure. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, like you said, there's just so many movies, and, and you this is a book where you really you cover so much ground. Uh, obviously, we can't touch on nearly all of it today. So, so we're going to pick a few of the movies. Um, the first one you talk about in your book, though, is The Blitter Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Um, what was so innovative about the way this movie was conceived and created? Uh, you know, for, it's it's a really interesting story, and I, you know, it kicks off the book for two reasons. One is that it the book goes chronologically from January to December, and Blair Witch Project debuted at Sundance in 1999. Um, but it also, I think, Blair Witch kind of perfectly kind of encapsulates what was going on in the 90s. You'd asked earlier, and really, the 90s was one of these decades where a lot of young people were just deciding to make their own movie. I think in the 80s, that seemed less and less uh, like a feasible thing to do. And there were some independent directors. But in the 90s, you just had people, you know, maxing out credit cards and doing everything they could to to make a movie because that's kind of where the culture was. That was sort of the big artistic statement you could make in your 20s or 30s. So The Blair Witch Project is it's by these two college students in Florida had had, had this idea for years about making a very sort of bare bones kind of scary movie like the ones they grew up on, like Jaws uh, or The Exorcist. And they came up with this idea, which they took them a couple of years to execute, where they put these actors in the woods, gave them each cameras, gave them maps, gave them a, 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 these GPS devices so they could sort of follow them around in the woods where they know where they're going, but didn't really give them a script and kind of made up this whole story about um, the disappearance of these three kids who were investigating an old legend. Uh, about a witch. And that became the Blair Witch Project, which is this, you know, it's barely 90 minutes long. It's shot on multiple formats. It's, you know, it jump cuts from, you know, from a minute to an hour. It's it, it's a very disorienting movie for, I think, for people who weren't kind of used to reality show editing and, and shows like Cops back then. Mm-hmm. But that movie, no one had made a big movie like that. And no one had used the internet in the way um, these filmmakers did. And to the point that when the Blair Witch opened, the summer 99, there were people who really thought these three kids had disappeared. I mean, they thought they were going in to watch a documentary about three kids being killed in the woods. Um, and it, you, you kind of can never replicate that experience. But it was a very exciting movie that when I talked to people for the book, there was this very, um, very easy to discern generation gap. Whereas I think people who were in their teens and 20s when The Blair Witch came out, they were like, oh, I love that movie. It was really creepy. It freaked me out. And people who were sort of 30 or over would be like, can I go off the record and talk about how much I hated the Blair, <laughs> Blair Witch? <laughs> it was a very divisive movie. I mean, people, you know, it, people threw up in the theaters because, you know, now we're very much used to Instagram and, and when Vine was around or TikTok, very, very quick cuts where you can get the story across in a matter of seconds or minutes. Mm-hmm. But back then, you did not have big movies like that. Um, well, and it, 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 the, the, the found footage genre um, didn't really exist before this. Yeah. And the found footage genre really, you know, I think everyone sort of thinks that after Blair Witch, there were all these found footage movies, and there were a few, but it took people years to kind of, you know, I think Paranormal Activity was the first big movie to kind of use it again and really have a hit with it, and that was many years away. But Blair Witch was, without a doubt, the biggest, you know, sort of cultural phenomenon of that summer. The It was on the cover of Time and Newsweek in the same span, which is, you know, that's amazing. That's, you know, that that, that only happens when it's like, you know, 
presidential deaths or wars, really. Um, so that's how big that movie was that summer. And it still to this day is very divisive. I, I think it's really scary. I saw in a screening room one night in midtown Manhattan before it opened. And I, as cliche as it sounds, I really genuinely, genuinely remember clutching the armrest. I was really freaked out by it, even though I knew it was fake. Yeah, they, they do a lot with um, just mastering anxiety and, and, you know, you don't see anything, you know, it's not shock scares or anything like that, but it's just um, messing with you psychologically. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's just, and you're, and it's so disorienting. You just, you, it looks like what really junky found footage would look like in the late nineties. Um, so it was, it was very well made and it's, it's, I would love if someone who's maybe 13 or 14 were to watch that now without knowing anything about it. I wonder if they would be like, oh my gosh, is this real? Like would they Google it afterward? <laughs> Like, I wonder if it still can kind of fool you a little bit um, now that it's had 20 years distance and people aren't talking about it every day. All right. So let's switch gears and to the lighter side and let's talk about comedy. Um, mm-hmm. What was uh, Mike Judge's inspiration for Office Space? And, and how was that film able to tap into this kind of simmering feeling um, among corporate America in the late 90s? Yeah, it's interesting. So by the late 90s, you know, Mike Judge was this kind of self-taught animator who had also studied engineering and worked in some, you know, some temp jobs, but he'd become this big star in the nineties because of Beavis and Butthead. Um, and then he made the Beavis and Butthead movie and he had, he had clashed with some people at the studio about that. So I think Mike judge has always had a bit of animosity toward bosses <laughs> and his own bosses. And, you know, he wrote this, he wrote this movie office space that was about the, about sort of the cubicle culture of the nineties. And when I interviewed him for the book, he thought that maybe he was too late. He thought that maybe, um, the sort of idea of your job kind of sucks and it doesn't define you anymore was was starting to creep in in the early 90s. But I, I think what that movie captures really well, and again, this movie was not a hit. It, it is a huge hit now. Everyone can quote Office Space. Everyone sees, you know, a GIF from Office Space in their feed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I literally <laughs> sent my wife one this week. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, everyone knows what the red stapler is. But it was a huge bomb. I mean, it was a movie where two of the actors I interviewed both told me they went to separate theaters on opening weekend and they were pretty much the only ones there in, in LA, which is a very bad sign for a movie. But, you know, I think what had happened was the eighties had all these movies, these big hit movies about the workplace. And so you had working girl and broadcast news and even the secret of my success, which were, you know, for the most part aspirational about, about corporate life. It was like, this is what you wanted to do. You know I mean? Even, you know, the whole, the whole plot of risky business is these kids want to get rich and work in a big job, you know? And I think what had happened in the nineties is that the sort of realization of, you know, the, the economy had created out in the early nineties. And now a lot of young people and middle-aged people were stuck in these really crummy office jobs. And they were in these cubicles, which kind of hadn't had existed before, but now we're sort of taking over these corporate parks around America. So I think Office Space, even though people didn't quite realize it at the time, because it took some, it took you know home video and cable reruns to make it a hit. I think Office Space kind of became this call to arms to anyone who was like, "Wait, my job sucks, and why do I think my entire life has to be reflected in my job?" I think that movie is very much, um, you know, it's an escapist fantasy about reclaiming your life. And I don't know who can't relate to that scene where Ron Livingston's character just takes a drill to his cubicle wall and <laughs> knocks it over just so he can get a view out the window. And it's played for comedy in the in the movie, and it's very funny. But that's a very, you know, that's a very evocative scene for anyone who's been stuck in an office for, for years or even months on end. It's you, you don't sort of, you know, it was a very kind of um, not dangerous message, but it was definitely kind of a very kind of um, subversive message wrapped up in, in, a, in, a, in a really funny joke. You know, very, very well paced, smart, incisive comedy. 
And you, you've hinted at this already. Um, this one was kind of a kind of a slow starter. Um, how did it take film executives and and the the movie going public so long to to finally appreciate this movie? You know, from what Mike Judge says, he you know he's always very careful when he talks about it because I think he's very grateful that Fox let him make the movie, but I don't think they were happy with it. I think that the executives apparently wanted more jokes i think they were three you know um, office space has a very um a lot of sort of um southern gangster rap on the soundtrack which i don't think the executives liked um and they gave it kind of you know every movie that doesn't work they blame the marketing campaign but you know it's a pretty terrible poster <laughs> you know it's a guy covered in yellow post-its who looks kind of like the mummy and i think i think executives kind of just didn't get it and they put it out in february which is kind of a dumpy month um for movies you just where you, you put the stuff that you don't think is going to work but the people who did see it in the theater were people like um like jim carrey who you know called mike judge the week after it came out and said i want to talk to you i love this movie i think people you know madonna was a big office space fan i think people who saw it got it right away but um you know it took you know comedy central re-aired it literally dozens of times in the next several years and it wound up coming out right at the peak of the dvd home video era so that DVD sold millions of copies. And I mean, I, again, it's like, it'd be hard. I think if you were to tell someone who was under 25 that Office Space was not a hit when it came out, I think they'd be surprised because they've kind of been growing up with it their whole life. Yeah, it, it was definitely a, a surprise to me. Yeah. Um, and, and it holds up really well, too, I will say. Like, a lot of these movies, it, it, you can still relate to. The technology is different. You know, the fax machine that he's beating would now be our smartphone. Uh, <laughs> but it's it holds. It's still very relatable. It's just very much about being trapped in a bureaucracy, which is what we all, <laughs> we all are every day at this point. So, uh, sci- sci-fi. Um, the, one of the most um, kind of pivotal movies uh, of, of the era was The Matrix. Yeah. Uh, what technological and visual challenges did the Wachowskis have in making the matrix? It's, you know, they, they were kind of, they, it's interesting with the, with the matrix. I think people forget that the Wachowskis were at that point, these two sibling filmmakers who'd only made a little noir movie. So it took years and years for them to even to convince Warner brothers to make the matrix. And I think even when it was being made, some people at the studio didn't quite understand what it was, because if you look at the screenplay, it describes all these sort of, um, things that defy, you know, physics and physical boundaries. And so what they did was they they had to combine um, this really elaborate wire work where these actors would be, you know, flying around on these big wires with this kind of digital technology that was really, um, you know, CGI by the late 90s was still, it was less than 10 years old, at least the kind of post-Jurassic Park CGI we think of. You know, I mean, you had Terminator 2, you had Jurassic Park, you had um, a lot of other sort of big CGI movies in the 90s. But the Matrix was trying to sort of basically invent a new science on screen and off screen. So you had bullet time, which was this kind of remarkable camera trick where the action sort of speeds up and slows down at the same time. And I think, you know, for people who want to know what that looks like, if they don't remember, all you have to do is just sort of Google, um, you know, Matrix bullet time. And you'll see this very famous scene of Keanu Reeves bending backwards as the camera spins around him. And these bullets are flying by him in slow motion. And, you know, it's completely upended the way people made action movies. Um, uh, you know, the Blair Witch took a little while for people to figure out how to rip off. But I remember within a year of The Matrix, you were starting to see commercials and even some action movies that were trying to change the way action scenes were filmed. Um, and I don't think, you know, a lot of the technology hadn't really been developed at that point. They were kind of I think they were 
I think they were very lucky in that the technology kind of matched where they were with the filmmaking schedule at that point. Because I, I think that that movie could have been a very disastrous film if it weren't for the fact that they had these really talented CGI guys working on it. And with the themes in the movie, the, the, the film was very prescient of life today in the inter- internet age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in every way, in, in good ways and bad ways. I mean, you know, we use people on online use the term red pill a lot to um, describe being awoken to some bigger reality. And, and that term has kind of become um, bastardized in a lot of ways. And it, it has sort of uh, negative connotations now. But, you know, those ideas like red pilling um, are, are, are very much still out in the culture. And even the whole idea of the Matrix, which is sort of similar to being John Malkovich, is this whole idea of um, disappearing into some other world is that it's a kind of a very big, um, you know, the matrix is a very specific world, but it's a very big sort of philosophical question, which is, you know, who am I? Like, am I who I am in this world? Am I who I am pretending to be in this other world? And you can certainly look at that now in an era of, you know, spam bots and, and, you know, people making fake aliases online and, and losing themselves in kind of virtual worlds through their avatars. I mean, that's very much, what the matrix was either celebrating or warning, you know, depending on how you look on it back then. Well, and just the way people present themselves on, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of like having this hacker who kind of is holed up in this tiny little apartment play, you know, played by Keanu Reeves. And then, you know, when he is transformed digitally and virtually into this like machine gun toting guy with black sunglasses and a leather duster, it's like, this weird sort of like, you know, sort of self-obsessive kind of, you know, he's kind of representing himself to the world. That's what everyone does online. I mean, that's what everyone's, you know, everyone spends 20 minutes, you know, filtering their Instagram. So it looks perfect. And it's, 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 a, it's all kind of these weird constructed realities where it's, um, you know, who knows which constructed reality we're living in at any given time or we think we're living in. But, and I think the matrix was really, um, I don't think it was making big, um, statements about that i think it was just asking sort of big questions at that point and it happened to come out you know after we've had a couple years of internet culture and people were more online than ever back in 1999 so it was a very pertinent question to ask back then mm-hmm. uh well your book uh, introduced me to an entirely new word uh that of teen exploitation. Uh, <laughs> what, what can you tell us about teen exploitation films of the late 90s yeah, I, I can't take credit for that term. Like, uh, Entertainment Weekly put that on their cover in, in 99. But, you know, what happened was after Clueless in 95, um, there had not been a lot of teen movies in the early 90s. There had been a few, but it had not been like the 80s where you just had, you know, every teen actor was getting their own starring vehicle. Um, but I think Clueless and then a movie called The Craft and then Scream, I think those movies sort of re- reawoken studio executives and TV executives to the fact that there was this new generation of teenagers. And what happened was by 99, you had um, the WB, which was now the CW, which was making all these teen uh, dramas like Dawson's Creek. Mm-hmm. And you had all these studios that were looking for very, you know, low budget movies that could put a big TV teen star in and try to get a couple weekends of, of box office. And so you had um, actors like James Vanderbeek, or Katie Holmes, or um, just a lot of really young um, actors, mostly from TV, who were being given starring roles in films like um, Varsity Blues. You had Heath Ledger, who was not a teenager, but you know he was in 10 Things I Hate About You, which was a very, very, very popular movie now, still 20 years later. So you had all these movies made for this teen audience that didn't have um, 
smartphones yet. So the movies is what you did. It's like that was sort of your weekend thing was if you were a teenager in America in the late 90s, you didn't have a lot of other options other than to go to the movies. So you had just a, a glut of films that year. You had She's All That and um, you had, well, I mean, The Virgin Suicides is a very different kind of teen movie, but you had American Pie, which is you know the biggest teen movie, I think, still of all time. You just, you had a lot of young people and you had a lot of young stars who could be put in these movies and put on the posters and teenagers would show up. They would recognize the guy from Dawson's Creek and want to go see that movie this weekend. And those movies were, you know, I think combined, they made almost $500 million that year. Like all those teen movies, if you add them all up, it was really, really a big year for teen films. And nowadays those would all be on Netflix or, or maybe even, you know, Freeform or something. Right. You don't really see the, those kind of, of theater releases anymore. Yeah. Teen high school movies are very, for theatrical releases are really, really rare. Maybe, maybe that'll change. Um, but but certainly for now, it's it, that twenty years ago was kind of the apex of it, I think. So one kind of release that we still have today, and we have one coming up this December, is Star Wars. And um, this is an interesting time to be talking about this because in 1999 we had the re-release of the Phantom Menace, and now uh, we have the Rise of Skywalker coming up. Uh, how how did the hype building up to the release of the Phantom Menace compare? to what we've seen with this last batch of films? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think they're so far removed because I think, um, you know, what had made the Phantom Menace this event back when you didn't, back when you didn't have like an event movie every other weekend, which is sort of the way it feels now. You know, I think, I think the, they first announced this was happening either in late 94 or early 95. So, and Star Wars had been off the screen for, since 1983, basically. So, there was a huge, huge um, demand for this movie, and it was years and years of buildup. It was really the first movie that I remember very actively trying to watch the trailer online back when there was like QuickTime, and it was very, I mean, the entire uh, world was sort of logged on for these couple hours to try to watch this trailer. And I, I remember the internet basically kind of shut down. I'm sure it didn't for real, but I know there were actual server problems because of it. And you just didn't have movies that that big for that long of a buildup, you know. And now we sort of you know, the, when Disney kind of announces a new Star Wars movie, it's part of a very big kind of three, five year plan. And we sort of know all the beats it's going to hit. Um, we know when this trailer is going to come. We know there's going to be a Monday Night Football trailer because of ABC, Disney Synergy. But, you know, back when they're making Phantom Menace, it all sort of it felt a little more organic, weirdly. It didn't feel uh, as big as it was. It didn't feel quite as much of a a machine uh, as maybe the new ones feel. Um, and it was, I mean, no people had waited 16 years for that movie and very rare does that happen anymore uh, that you get that kind of buildup for such a huge, huge story. And I think that's why um, the response to it was both, you know, financially um, overwhelming. I mean, it, it was, you know, at a time where movies did not make almost a billion dollars, the Phantom Menace came really close. I think for a long time, it was second only to the Titanic. Um, but it was also that's also why it it fell in the way it did. I mean, the expectations were so huge for it. And you had people lining out for weeks and watching trailers months and months and talking about it online for years. I mean, years and years and years speculating. So there was no way it could satisfy those demands. And um, I mean, there's also when you see the Phantom Menace, there's a lot there's a lot of things that movie cannot satisfy in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, it, it was not a great movie. It's doing some really interesting things actually compared to the new movies. But yeah. Um, it certainly feels very different. It, it feels like it, it, it. I feel like movies come out now and they own a couple of weeks or a couple of months of the cultural space. But Phantom Menace owned many years of it. I mean, it was it was definitely a, a sort of turning point in where where sort of 
pop culture goes in terms of looking at older properties and trying to spruce them up. I, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think when Star Wars came out, it would have been on the cover of Vanity Fair in 1977. But when The Phantom Menace came out, it was absolutely on the cover of Vanity, Vanity Fair. It was a huge, with a huge, you know, portfolio and it was a, it was a very big deal, um, and I, and I was part of the media that was helping to prop it up back then. And I can tell you, like we just had months and months of, of Phantom Menace coverage. You could not cover that movie enough. Uh, I remember that. I I think I was yeah. in middle school when that came out, and it was yeah, like you said, months and months and months of Phantom Menace. Um, yeah, and even when even when it was bad, we still kept covering. <laughs> <laughs> um, how how was does the initial reaction because it's widely regarded as as the weak point in in the franchise? How, how does the initial reaction compare to how we think about that movie today? It's interesting. I mean, a lot, what's what was kind of interesting when I went back and started looking at Phantom Menace again, and it was a movie I saw in the theater three or four times, hoping I would like it. Um, but when I was looking at kind of, you know, I, I was sort of digging into what younger fans think of it now. And, I, you know, people who were six, seven, eight, nine when that movie came out, that's their Star Wars movie. So, um, the, you know, they're nostalgic for it in the same way that I would grew up very nostalgic for the original Star Wars movies. I do think that movie is still very bad in, in, in the ways it was back in 1999. I do think the dialogue is just absolutely clunky and the storytelling is is a real mess. But Jar Jar Banks. Jar, you know, you know, but the thing is, you know, the thing is, and the Jar Jar stuff does not work. I really admire what Ahmed Best was trying to do. Um, I don't know if it's a movie that needed the, quite that many comedic beats, but look, if you look at the new, you know, they just put out another um, Star Wars trailer recently for for the new Skywalker film, and you know, it's great to see the Millennium Falcon and Y wings and all this stuff that I love in the original movies. But I do think one thing to the Phantom Menace's credit is that. George Lucas was trying to build all new worlds. You know, he was not, he was basically dropping a lot of the aesthetic of the original Star Wars movies and trying to make something new. And I think there's something very admirable in that. Whereas now I enjoy the new Star Wars movies, some of them, but they certainly feel like they're being made to satisfy kind of the 13 year old me, not the 43 year old me. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I think the things I respond to them are like, oh, I remember the Death Star looked like it's pretty cool. They kind of recreated that look, you know, whereas you know those those original those that prequel trilogy as troubled as it is in a lot of ways, um, at least was trying to really push some things forward in terms of visuals and worlds and stuff like that. Um, it's still, you know, no one in the world talks like those characters. The dialogue is still so bad, <laughs> but at least it has a little bit of that uh, innovation that I think might be lacking sometimes in the new movies. I, I can agree with that. Um, so uh, the horror genre, we talked about Blair Witch. Um, another big movie that year though was the sixth sense. Mm-hmm. And, and that really kind of kickstarted M. Night Shyamalan's career. And oh, yeah. it, it all hinged on that twist at the end. Um, how difficult was it to, to sell that twist? And, and how did people react to that, the movie going public? The, you know, what's crazy about The Sixth Sense is, you know, if you look at a huge movie like this year, uh, say like Avengers Endgame, you know, it was in theaters for two or three months and now it's on now it's you know on demand but five or six months later whatever the sixth sense played in theaters for almost a year um i mean really when you look at it it was almost 52 weeks which is incredible that never ever happens anymore and it didn't happen that much back then but what happened was i think that was just purely a word of mouth movie and the nice thing about the sixth sense is that it surprised everyone no one was expecting it to be a hit disney certainly did not know what they had i mean i think they were screening it for critics a few weeks before and some of them told me that disney was basically put throwing up their hands like we have no idea what this movie is like what, what like we don't know what to do with this because you know it was a bruce willis was 
kind of in a little bit of a rut at that point. He had not had a hit drama in a, in a long time. Um, I mean, Pulp Fiction, I think, is something kind of different than, than Sixth Sense. And it came out in August, which is kind of the dog days, kind of like February for Office Space. is where you dump the movies that aren't going to work. And they didn't have to sell it on a twist. Instead, they kind of sold it on I See Dead People, um, which which is the sort of catchphrase that comes up halfway through the movie. And I think that was enough to hook people in. And then it, you just had this word of mouth where people would say, look, you got to see this movie. I don't want to ruin it for you, but it really has something you've got to see. Um, and nowadays, of course, you would just go, people would just go online and Google what is Sixth Sense Twist and not even see it. But back then, it felt like you kind of had to see it. And um, you know, that movie was the second biggest film of 1999, right after The Phantom Menace. It's remarkable how much money it made. It got nominated for Best Picture. You know, M. Night Shyamalan got, I think, what are still his only Oscar nominations for that movie. Um, it was a phenomenon. And it was, it was kind of this polite, there was this kind of communal politeness where, you weren't going to walk into a party and go, I can't believe the guy is dead all the time. <laughs> you know, you weren't going to mess up the sixth sense because you'd be a jerk. <laughs> you know, it's, but I also think that movie, um, I think M night's movies later on kind of lived or died by the twist. I think people just went in expecting a big twist. And when that wasn't always satisfying, um, the movies got, uh, kicked around a bit. You know, I think, um, the sixth sense, when you look at it, there's nothing manipulative about it at all. It's a really interesting movie. It's, it's absolutely one of the best movies of that year. It's it's uh, considering M Night Shyamalan hadn't. I don't think he had his first kid when he wrote it. It's it's a very moving, perceptive movie about parenting and about not being able to wa- take care of your kids at all times. And but it's just a really good drama. It's and and you know they get the i the the I see dead people thing. I think some people for mis misremember that that's one of the big twists. And it's like they're pretty upfront with that. That happens in the first you know forty minutes or so. I think. Um, and the rest of the movie plays out really well. It's if if. Listeners haven't watched it in a while. I think if they rewatched it now, they'd be surprised how good the movie is aside from the twist, which some of M. Night's movies um, don't work <laughs> except for the twist sometimes, you know. Well, and, and what I thought was brilliant about it is is once you see it and you see the twist, you have to go back and rewatch it with that yeah. knowledge. Yeah, no, that, and I think it's, you're right. And I think it's one of the reasons why it played in theaters for almost a year and why it wound up. You know, I don't. It was a huge, huge VHS and DVD rental for years and years. It just, it, it never stopped making money for several years, because of course people want to watch it again, and and you put it on, and you're like, okay, this time I'm going to outsmart the movie, but then you realize that the movie just kind of always outsmarted you in a very subtle way. There's, there's no way you could watch the first hour of that and kind of guess the twist. Some people have, and I don't know. I don't think I would have. Uh, it, it's a very, it's a very well, well, well written and really well structured movie. Mm-hmm. So um, on to on to other movies that were very well received critically. Um, let's talk about uh, American Beauty. How how is that mm-hmm. a reflection of um, a decade of suburban divorce and infidelity? Yeah, it came at a very interesting time because Alan Ball, who was a TV writer, had written it earlier in the '90s and sort of worked on it in the mid '90s, and he had been influenced largely by the sort of Amy Fisher um, Joy Botafuco affair, which for people who don't remember was you know this. This very scandalous uh, Long Island uh, kind of, you know, drama that played out where a guy had an affair with a young woman and she shot this guy's wife and it became covered in the media and it all became about, you know, who was who was the victim here? Was it this woman they called the Long Island Lolita or was it this guy who had taken advantage of her? And that's, that's the way it was framed back in the early 90s. I think nowadays it's pretty obvious that Jay Botafuco was not was not a good guy. Um <laughs> But there was this whole sort of feeling in the 90s. Divorce rates went up. Um, you had, obviously, Clinton. And Clinton had been dogged by infidelity rumors throughout his, or even the 92 campaign. And then, obviously, we all know what happened later in the 90s with Monica Lewinsky. So 
I think it was kind of this period in America where um, people were getting a little navel-gazy and sort of saying, okay, what is the state of the, you know, American marriage? I mean, and, and it's funny to bring it back to Trump. You know, he put a book out in the late 90s where he kind of bragged about all of his affairs and bragged about, you know, all these divorced, all these women who are cheating on their husbands with him and this whole idea of how, you know, how he benefited from all these uh, marriages falling apart. Um, but that was what people were really talking about. It was a very kind of baby boomer concern, frankly. Um, it was not for me because I was very young and did not care about such things. But American Beauty tapped into all that. And it tapped in this idea that the suburbs are are not the most pristine place that, they're, that they present themselves. And, you know, I always cringed at that idea. I always thought that was kind of an obvious idea because I'd grown up in the suburbs and I kind of knew things were not perfect. Um, but I can see why that struck a chord with people. And certainly, you know, American Beauty won Best Picture. It kind of got beaten up for the next several years as one of the not as good um, Best Picture movies. I think, it, I think you know, looking at it now, 20 years later, after we've had, you know, we've kind of pulled into these, you know, global global disputes and much bigger picture worries that we have, I think a guy, you know, if in 2019, if you're worried about the environment and worried about world and what's going on in, say, Syria, watching a movie about a 40 year old guy who's kind of bored with his marriage is not the most, you know, it doesn't seem like the most um, best use of your time, maybe. But, you know, American Beauty is also, um, you know, it's about a it's about a it's it's Kevin Spacey playing a creeped out 40 something guy who has a neo Nazi for a, a neighbor next door. And unfortunately, all those elements kind of feel a little more relevant now in 2019 than they may have. <laughs> 20 years ago i mean it's a it's a weird movie that it, it felt a little bit uh dated when it came out to me and now it feels like maybe it was actually a little bit ahead of the time as far as how dark kind of mainstream american culture and mainstream american suburbia would become all right and so for our uh, last film we'll talk about we're we're gonna break the number one rule of fight club and we're gonna talk about fight club okay um you identify a crisis of masculinity in the 90s um how did this film address that and and how is the character of tyler durden um a rejection of, of that well you know it's i i, I was uh, a teenager for most of the 90s so i don't uh, cr neither crises nor masculinity were two things i probably <laughs> thought about a lot but it was i do remember you know you would read about these groups like the promise keepers and all these kind of um you know in the in the mid 90s i started reading about these groups and they were kind of these best-selling books about you know, men retreating back to the woods and having, you know, drum circles to kind of reclaim their masculinity, which, you know, I, I, I thought was a little ridiculous at the time. I, I, maybe I'd be a little more sympathetic now, now that I'm <laughs> middle aged. Um, but there was certainly a feeling that, um, you know, this was Generation X and they were the first generation in a, in a long while to not have um, a, a long running war that defined them. They didn't have World War II. They didn't have a Korea or Vietnam. And I think they looked at previous generations and saw that, you know, older men had kind of defined themselves by what they did when history called upon them, you know. And I think there's a great line of Fight Club where, you know, Brad Pitt's character says we are the middle children of history. And it did. And I do think now looking back, you can absolutely see that's what was going on for, for men of that age. I, again, I was a little bit younger than all of this, so I, I don't know if I quite tuned in on that, but. The thing about Fight Club that I really did connect with back in my early 20s is that the movie's also very much, um, you know, it's about this 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 guy who's working this office job and he doesn't like. He's kind of trapped in a world of this Ikea land. He's kind of built for himself out of Ikea furniture and he feels very much like advertising is kind of selling him this false idea of what it means to be a person. And I, 
And I think even back then, I was very skeptical of advertising and very skeptical of corporate America and the Starbucksing of everything. And so Fight Club comes along, and it's it's a very dangerous movie with an idea that basically you can reject all this stuff. And it's not it's not dissimilar from the message in Office Space or the message in The Matrix, which is all these things that you think define you don't define you. You know, you can define yourself. And Fight Club comes to a very violent conclusion about that. And uh, I think it was as much of a warning as it was kind of maybe an anthem for some people. But it was a very interesting movie that kind of literally and figuratively kind of blew up this idea of of what it was like to be a man and what it was like to be, you know, a functioning human being in the late 90s. And, you know, I, I really like it. I understand why some people um, really wince at the movie. And, and I can see why some people maybe don't quite get the humor of it. Um, but that was a for, for 20th Century Fox to put two huge movie stars and a 60 or $70 million budget into a movie with that kind of big idea, it's just, it's amazing. I don't think it would happen now um, unless it was put into a franchise film, maybe. Uh, well, Brian, this has been um, a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed this book and, you know, I love, I love talking about movies. Uh, if someone wants to uh, pick up a copy of your book or learn more about you and your work, uh, where can they go? Uh, the book is for sale everywhere, and then I I I have a I don't use Twitter much anymore <laughs> because it's become the hellscape that the Wachowskis predicted twenty years ago. Um, <laughs> but I am wrong. I, I yeah I mean I BrianRaffy.com has links to some other stuff I've been working on. Um, but yeah, this has been great, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to listen to this episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed what we talked about. I love cultural history. I love movies. This was a lot of fun to talk about. If this is something that you think you might be interested in and you want to check out Brian's book for yourself, look down in the description of your podcast app and you'll find a link to Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. And I'd love to talk movies with you on social media. You can find me on Twitter at CMTU History. You can find me on Instagram, also at CMTU History. Get in touch, let me know what you thought about this episode, and let me know what some of your favorite movies were from 1999. All right, that's it for this installment of the podcast. I will see you guys back here in two weeks. Again, we're back on our two-week regular rotation. I'll see you back here in two weeks on November 19th. Take care.